Okay, this morning, I welcome Jason Strecker to the channel. Jason is guest number five in my Community Leaders podcast series. Jason has over 15 years of teaching experience and is currently head of mathematics at a K through 12 independent school. Jason is also a regular contributor to The Spectator and has authored many articles on the COVID-19 pandemic, government policy and cultural issues. Prior to teaching, Jason held several positions in management and IT. Jason is also an avid runner and bike rider. Jason, welcome to the show and to the North Pole. Yeah, thank you very much, Victor. It's my pleasure to be here, uh, a bit further south than you. So I don't know what that makes me in terms of the North Pole, probably the equator, maybe. But in saying that, you have had some extreme heat. You're, you're in Sydney. Yep. Yeah, yep. just south, about 100 yep. kilometers south of Sydney. So, yep. Did you get the, the run of 39, 40-degree days? Yeah, yeah, we, we peaked at about 41 degrees or so, 42 or something about that, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Even by my standards up here, that is very warm. Quick question. When yeah. I went to um, primary school not so long ago, mm. maybe, um, the teacher would enter the room in the morning and mm. all the students would stand and they would say, good morning, Mr. Strecker. Mm. And then the teacher would say, okay, you guys can sit down now. My image of what classroom is now is kids are all on their phone and you walk in and they go, g'day, Jason, and go back to their phone. So what, what is, what is the, the, the greeting and how, what is it like? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, it's something that comes up quite often in just general conversation in the public itself. I think we have this general expectation that kids have completely changed and morphed into some creatures um, that we've never seen before. But that's actually not the case. Uh, fundamentally, the kids are the same. Like, you know, they have the same desires uh, to fit in, um, the same hopes um, and the same stresses as well. Um, sure, the, the flavour of it might change. Um, but fundamentally, a lot of it stays the same. Um, I'm more so, I don't go down quite down to the kindergarten level. So, you know, the way the, the way schools tend to work is that in the lower years, you've got a much more regimented approach. So when you see a primary oh. teacher um, walk across the quadrangle, um, you've got all these little kids in tow, like the Pied Piper, right? Um, yeah. But obviously then as you get older in the years, so you're hitting 15, 16s or whatever, it's very much a different atmosphere. And so they will be around the teacher or in some discussion with themselves or with the teacher themselves. So it changes as, as you get older and as you pr pretty much expect there to be the case. I mean, you know, when you have a child and you're at a busy crossing, you're going to hold the child's hand to make sure they don't run out in front of the traffic and they do all the right things. Um, but, you know, my kids are, you know, 16 years and above and I don't need to hold their hand crossing the road anymore. And uh, I like to tell them there's going to come a time when they're going to be needing to hold my hand to get across the crossing. So, you know, things will flip around. Um, so the other part that you actually hit on really well is the culture actually is different very much from school to school. So there's a there's not a, a single school culture out there. Um, it changes depending on where the school is socioeconomically, but it also depends on the type of school too. Um, is it an independent school? Is it a Christian school? Is it a Catholic school? You know, is it a state school? Is it a selective? All those different types of schools um, that are out there. And the culture within the school will determine a lot of those types of behaviours, uh, if you like to. So, you know, in our high school, um, well, yeah, pretty much if I talk about the high school itself, kids aren't on the phones. And I know that's a question that's come up in the press quite often. Um, after school, you know, if they're going down to the bus, that certainly might be the case. 
in some classes, they will line up outside the classroom if they're in the younger years in particular. Um, but then as they get older in years, you want more responsibility and trust to be there. And so you want them to own their education more so. So, you know, those kinds of rules will loosen up as time goes on. So in regards to um, the smartphones, yep. um, I, I do remember reading that uh, in New South Wales, uh, in, oh gosh, I think it was term four 20 th this year, yep. that they were going to ban all smartphones um, in, in public high schools. Mm -hmm. um, I'm surprised that it took them that long. Um, I understand that the, there was this idea that kids, particularly from low SES backgrounds, didn't have access to um, computers, laptops, iPads, those sort of devices. So the smartphone was a way that they could connect um, to resources within the classroom. Um, but I always found it quite interesting that they actually banned it in primary school very long time ago, um, and but it took this long. But I remember reading that in the middle of the year and then I've kind of heard no no follow-up. Do you know if that was implemented? And I know that you're in the independent school sector. I know that your rules um, perhaps were a little bit stricter. Is that right? It's a real, yeah, look, all these discussions are publicised as being one thing and probably behind the scenes there's something else. Um, so the issues around not having school, like phones in school, <sighs> I'm probably in the minority in saying this, but it's a little bit of a furphy because the real issue about banning phones in school is, is what, what do you do with them then? So if you're in a state school, let's say you're quite a large state school, kids have got their phones in their bags or wherever it is, are they supposed to hand them in when they come into school? And if so, how do you actually manage that? Um, and if there's a front office for them to be stored in and a phone goes missing or damaged, who's responsible for that? So there's a whole series of technicalities that, probably needed to be worked through um, behind the scenes. You, know, you often think that common sense kind of um, should take over on these things, but often when you get uh, bureaucracies involved, the, the, the first thing that goes is the common sense. Because you can, you can simply say, um, well, I understand you need to have your phone on the way to the school, you know, mm -hmm. catching a bus or whatever it happens to be. Um, in, the, in the school, you put your phone in your bag and it comes out after the school again. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but, you know, there can also then be a series of uh, other bits and pieces around that as, as to how do you manage that? Well, how do you guarantee the kid's not going to take the phone out of the bag? And what do you do under that circumstance? And you can go down a rabbit hole in creating a, a checklist and process on upon process uh, to solve a problem that you don't really need to. Um, the, Is the there a lot of pressure from the, the parents? Um, because uh, I feel... And, and perhaps this is just another um, popular discourse that's incorrect, but I feel like parents now have an increasing need to be in contact at all times with their, their child in order to make them and the child feel safe. Yeah. Is, is that actually, played out or is that? Yep, that is definitely the case. So uh, an interesting um, one of like, it, it comes into different, in, in different forms. So one, one example, for instance, this year, um, there was a kid that had, to be honest, this particular circumstance, I probably would have just let play down, but it was creating um, an issue and attracting attention to itself, to the problem itself. And I saw a kid, two kids exchange something. I actually didn't even know what it was at that time. I just saw them exchange something. I thought, whatever this is, it's going to create, it, it, I need to settle these, these kids down and get them to class because it was in between classes. Um, and as it turned out, it was a pair of headphones, right? And uh, 
So I took the headphones and said, come talk to me at lunchtime. And now the kid knows, the kids know they're not allowed to have the technology out. And they certainly, that means they're not allowed to have headphones out at that point in time. Um, and so I simply asked the kid the question, well, do you understand what you did wrong at that point in time? And um, the kid didn't say, so I didn't do anything wrong. So, okay, well, come back to me next lunch and we'll have another chat about it. It gives you a chance to think about what actually transpired um, with those headphones and the distractions it was caused. Next thing I get a call from mum um, and mum's going, I don't know what you've said to my daughter, but she's in tears. Um, you need to go and explain it to her and apologize and all that sort of thing. I said to myself, and I, and I was talking to her and going, how on earth, how did you get contacted? Oh, well, my daughter contacted me. How did she contact you? Via the mobile phone. Okay, so you understand that you signed and your child signed a IT policy saying that agreeing to the fact that you will not use your phones during uh, during class or in between classes without teacher's permission. Oh, okay. So we went through that process about why that was the case. But that's that's also goes to your narrative in terms of saying, well, why did the, the child contact their parent? Why did the parent then not respond by saying, hey, why are you contacting me about this? Um, go and talk to the teacher. There's a correct process to do so. I can call the front office, go to the front office and do that sort of stuff. Um, and then having to explain all of that. And that's exactly what you've just said. That's an example of it. She was concerned about her daughter's well-being at that, that point in time without understanding the full picture of it and that there was an immediate contact. And that does happen. Um, yeah. That, that, that sends, uh, uh, sorry, that sets a really, from an outsider's point of view, a dangerous precedent because yeah. one of the, the foundation principles of good parenting is that the parents don't undermine each other, as in you don't have like good cop, bad cop. Um, and, and what that, what that's doing, because it sounded like the parent was completely 100% siding with the child. I feel like the parent should have said, why are you calling me for such a trivial issue? Your teacher is correct, please. Yeah, that's right. You'd probably say, and look, the, the situation, the circumstance resolved itself well with, with further communication. So uh, the mum and myself got on at the end of it. So we resolved yeah. and, and I explained what the circumstances were. And interestingly enough, a friend of the person actually came up and ex explained the situation and took responsibility for what was going on. So we were able to resolve the entire problem. But it yeah. still illustrates that point that you're talking about um, and the extra communication that's required. Uh, but I feel that. like you're spending, uh, that would have, uh, the time yep. that it took to, to deal with that situation is taking away the time that you can spend on other responsibilities of being a teacher. And yep. this... Um, makes me think about, I used to be a personal trainer and one of my clients was um, a really idealistic, beautiful young lady. Um, and when I say beautiful young lady, she was young. She They graduated in Queensland at 17. She went um, through teaching. She absolutely killed the course. She graduated with honours. She mm. went straight into a good school. And within, I think it was uh, nine months, she had quit uh, mm. because um, she had really struggled with just the um, the amount of contact that parents were having with her and the expectation of reply. Um, so there was one case where she showed me an email that um, she'd received um, at 3 a.m. in the morning. And by the time she got to school at 8 a.m. that day, so five hours later, she hadn't even opened her email. The teacher had escalated that to the principal because they hadn't received a reply. Yep. Um, so again, this is the, it must be, very difficult uh, for teachers to maintain this balance because it almost feels like you're under the parent supervision 
in the classroom the whole time. And it seems like there's a real lack of trust of your authority and, and your ability. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think that this could be contributing to, there is a very large turnover, I think, in the, the career of, of teaching. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that is a part of it. And it's a significant part of it. And it's a really difficult one. Um, so, you know, I'm the head of a part department, so I'm responsible for staff. You, you can't train um, soft skills into people. Mm. And, and or I should say it's very difficult to train those skills into it. You can get people to simulate them, but it's it's very difficult to do. So if you've got a group of teachers, let's say on a percentage case or any any group, it doesn't matter, and you've got 10 people, maybe one of them has good soft skills um, experience and is able to then communicate to different audiences um, and that's you know and so if in, in your friend's case you know she's young she, she doesn't know how to she doesn't have the runs on the board and the scars on the back and the experience to understand how those relationships should work um, and what what indicates a good conversation versus not a good conversation and, and how to learn from that and when you cut your losses and all those sorts of things right and so she needs to actually have a team around her to help her in that process. So in that case there, maybe if there's some difficult conversations to have, it's not her that's having them, it's the head of department who actually has them or heads them or someone more suitable in that mm. process until such time as she either uh, develops those skills or if she never develops those skills, so there's a process in place to take care of that. Because you can have, as you know yourself or any anyone in the public, you can say things to make matters worse, right? You can actually, you know, everyone puts their foot in it at some stage, but in those tense type conversations, you can inadvertently say something um, which inflames the issues. And that, that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. I try and take a different tact on this. And this comes back down to the core part of what the purpose of education actually is in the first place. And it's, I think it's something we we've lost. Um, and I think we lose it by the fact that we create these structures around delivering a, a service and that service is commoditized and perhaps it has to be commoditized for scalability but we take the personal interaction out of that process. And so the way I actually view education is as a partnership with the parents. Um, and that mind shift, I think actually alleviates not all of the issues by any means, but it does alleviate a lot of the issues um, because you're looking at it from the perspective of what do you actually expect out of your child? Like what do you want them to do? Um, I, you know, I academically will have kids, for instance, which will say, we might say, okay, look, I think they're able to perform at this level. And we'll have a conversation with the parents and go, um, okay, we don't think they're putting in that the work to get to where they're capable of doing. Um, do you want us to push them further? And sometimes the parents will go, yeah, yeah, we absolutely do. That's great. Thank you for letting us know. But sometimes they'll go, actually, my kid is going through X, Y, and Z at the moment, and we're just concerned about them turning up to school mm. um, and having an enjoyable experience or just building up their confidence in that way. You can't know those things unless you have those conversations. Um, and that's why I think it's a partnership. Um, well, it is a partnership with the parents. I mean, I don't own the kids, you know, they're, they're not. I love all the kids that I have in my classes and mentor and, and, all, and all the rest of it. But the reality is they're the parents' kids. And mm. so they're ultimately responsible. I think that, that um, you've really hit the nail on the head here because I think that a lot of parents feel um, left out of the the experience because a lot of them are working incredibly long hours and they have a huge amount of guilt um, about that. But I just wonder because um, I wonder if those skills uh, are being touched on and taught um, to teachers coming through 
um, because in my friend's case, I think that she was quite um, naive and idealistic and a little bit more of a perfectionist as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just don't know if she, like you said, she was young, so there's that element to it, but I don't know... Um, sometimes I feel like courses can have a little bit of a box ticking, which they have to be because they're producing huge number of graduates. I understand that. Um, but whether they, they touch on this relationship with, with parents in the educational process. Yeah, it no, almost don't. sounds like you have almost like a, a, um, a counseling, uh, relationship. It, like you're almost, uh, a mediator between you know the education department the child the parent um it's a yep. it's a very complicated role particularly yeah, that's right. today yeah yeah that no that's absolutely right and it's not something which is noticed um and no, unless i don't think so yeah yeah that's right and, and and teachers themselves don't realize they're doing it it's interesting coming in from the outside world so like as you said i, I spent over a decade or a couple of de nearly 20 years in the it industry and you kind of get this impression coming from the outside world that teaching must be great. You get to sit back in a seat and you get to hypothesize about how different teaching strategies work and develop these lessons for kids to help kids. And when you actually get into it, you actually find out that it's a highly scheduled um, job. Like a teacher's job um, at any given day has, you know, 10, 20 times the number of tasks than, than I would have had in industry. Now, I'm not saying they're big tasks, a lot of them are tiny tasks, but there's a lot of tasks there. And when you're driven by tasks, that actually doesn't give you the presence of mind to sit back and assess what it is that you're trying to achieve and mm. what would be the best approach in particular situations. That takes a deliberate discipline to do so. Um, and so, you know, you may find yourself, so I'll go in, for instance, early in the morning and I'll actually sit back and assess the classes and, and, and try and think about what is going to work, what parental issues are going to rise. And even there is a, is a parental complaint, then how you actually manage that. Do you contact the parent straight away? Do you leave it a day to let them settle down? all those kinds of things. But if you're not driven to actually think like that, if you're driven by the tasks, the first response is going to be, I've got this yet another task. Yes. I try and contact the parent as quickly as I can. And that's not always the best opportunity or best time to do it. Because if you're worked up and you're just trying to tick this box and you're trying to you know, make that task done, how are you going to convey yourself to the parent if the parent is already uptight? Like it's, mm. So you're right. Like it's, we're not taught, teachers aren't taught those types of, complete picture skills um, to un for them to understand conceptually how they fit into the picture of this child's life. We, we do talk about them, but really the, the discussion on it is around probably from a psychological or sociological perspective. Um, yeah. So fitting them into uh, different boxes into a picture. Um, and I, I'm convinced that's, that's driven by the fact that we create these bureaucracies themselves. And so those bureaucracies then replicate their own thought processes in whatever industry they're working in. In this case, it's the education industry. And so they will replicate their own behaviours in that industry and force you down, down that particular line because that's convenient for them and that's the way they think. Yeah. While we're um, touching on um, popular narratives around teaching, uh, just for the, I know that you know, but just the people that are listening, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, education. I did a little bit of study in education, but I haven't actually experienced. So I'm actually just taking this opportunity <laughs> to get the real world perspective because um, let's be honest, I think it is quite rare that a teacher that's at the coalface of teaching is getting a platform. It seems yeah. like an incredibly strange thing to say, um, but when you look at even um, programs on ABC, SBS, 
um, and certainly on the, the the mainstream networks, it is the political representative or the person that is part of the teachers group who's speaking on behalf of teachers. But it is quite rare to be able to just have a, a discussion and certainly with a teacher with so much experience. So talking about popular narratives, um, let's talk about um, the idea that students have an attention span that's similar to a TikTok video and mm. that violent behavior is so much worse now um, than it was uh, when I was, say, growing up in the 80s. Um, just reflecting on your uh, 15 years experience, have you noticed particularly those two things? I think they get the most um, uh, treatment in the in the media, and that's that the lack of attention span. So therefore, mm -hmm. we have to completely change everything and the way we teach kids and how we teach kids, and it all has to be done on devices and um, and just the idea that this violent behaviour has increased. I don't know where they get their figures, but sometimes the, the the percentage increases are extraordinary because I went to a crazy violent um, public high school and um, literally to the point where we had a 10 foot barbed wire fence around the whole school, which was locked at recess and lunch to keep us in and the drug dealers out. And I'm not joking. Um, so for me uh, to think that things and, and fights were just regular, you would just expect it like multiple every single, every day. Um, so to think that things are getting worse, my my thinking, I'm not going to answer the question for you, but I think one of the, the reasons behind this is, again, it comes back to technology. Um, kids are filming themselves fighting and uploading that online. So perhaps that's contributing to this idea that things are getting worse. Where do you think that narrative is coming from, first of all, and what's the the perhaps the uh, agenda behind creating narratives like that? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, I'll try and. Sorry, I gave you a lot there. <laughs> so just, uh, just <laughs> you um, yep. uh, in your experience, um, do I think I basically what I'm saying is I don't know about this attention span argument. Mm. I, I don't know if that's true, um, and. The violent behavior I think is false. And I think that that's just happening because it's just a little bit more visual than it used to be. Mm. Yeah, I think there's validity in everything you've just said. There's a book, Nicholas Carr, I think the author's name called The Shallows um, some years ago. And he wrote down, okay. yeah, and, and there's, and he wrote, he did some part of the study he did was actually looking at concentration span. And so um, one of the things that uh, was assumed when when I guess I went through school is that we had about a three minute concentration span, and that's talking to newspapers as well. They would create their create their front page uh, front page article on the basis that we would lose a certain percentage of the population after the first few paragraphs. So th yeah. that's that's how they're written, right? and right, that's awesome. Yeah. I did not and, know that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. and so by the time uh, I guess probably ten years ago or so, that had dropped in Australia's case to roughly thirty-eight seconds. So roughly from three minutes to thirty-eight seconds, roughly. Um, and that's basically. Sorry, what was the the time span of that? The the three. Oh, that's minutes. probably about two decades. Yeah. Wow, that is actually quite. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and so he does. He does come into it. He does talk about the various reasons why, and he does bring technology into into that as part of as part of the problem too. Uh, it was part of the reasoning why the concentration is is reducing. Um, I certainly think it's reduced from from that. It, if I was to take a guess, I'd probably say it's about thirty seconds would be the concentration span um, before people start straying. So I think it has come down. 
but the question is, have the, have the kids, is that an organic thing? I, I don't think that's the case. So I think a lot of, so I'm going to kind of answer this in a roundabout way. I think a lot of the expression that people are, uh, are saying, so a lot of the things, the ways they're expressing themselves is they're actually seeing a breakdown in society. So when they talk about violence, what they're actually talking about is there was a respect for teachers before, um, and that respect has been, let's, let's say for teachers or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be just teachers. Um, and now um, that respect has been, been lost or has been reduced over the years. Now that's a cultural shift and that's been intentional because of, you know, changing certain things about our cultures. Uh, a friend is a paramedic, for instance, and paramedics were sacrosanct regardless of the circumstance. Um, and friends of mine were saying they've, they've actually encountered situations over the last decade or so where they've been attacked in, uh, in different places. Now that would never happen before, regardless of the circumstances. So there's, it's not just teachers that's happening to, um, it's, it's, it's everyone out there. Um, it's not as simple as to say that we've lost respect in authority because some of the authorities have overstepped their mark too. So they're responsible for a kickback um, in that. And we saw, you know, the last three years, police interactions um, doing crazy things, which were, yeah. and that's the minority of the police force. I don't want to scar the entire police force by some subset of, of people, but nevertheless, um, uh, there've been a lot of people that have interactions that have been completely inappropriate with authority figures such as police. Um, and that, that has a consequence in terms of loss of respect for them as well. Um, so kind of com coming around about way to say, you know, is it particularly uh, more violent because of violence sake? I don't think that's the case. Um, I think the, the levels of respect certainly have dropped off. Um, and there is a series of reasons for that. Um, and we've poured petrol on that fire over the last few years. So to, to give you an example of a parent that, um, yeah, parent that, that, that made an observation to me just in the last few weeks, um, I articulated some stories I'd heard and, and she was, she was saying, um, that one of her children had, uh, seriously contemplated and attempted suicide during the lockdowns. It affected her that bad. And that's not an unusual story that I would hear. That's pretty devastating. Um, but when I illustrated a couple of stories of things that I saw um, taking place during that time, because there was such pervasive rules, and there still is, like there's still rules everywhere. Like it's it's like let, let us live, let's just let us live our lives and make our decisions. Things cannot function in a rules focused society. But we had so many rules that it becomes no rules is what actually takes place. So her observation was is that a lot of kids out there now, because there became so many rules. You, they just go, well, it, the, the context changes to being following the rules to what can I get away with? So it's not talking about doing the right thing, um, like a, a virtue, for instance. Um, and Ian, the, the lawyer you've probably heard in the, in the Australian Science and Freedom Conference, uh, Ian Benson, talk about the word virtue. Um, and so it's building virtue in people. But rather than that, they're looking for how do I just get do whatever I want to do and work around these rules? And I think it's it's not just Solzhenitsyn, but others refer to this in the in in the USSR times as well. Where if I sat back at the, in the 1980s, for instance, Cold War was at its sort of peak to some extent. We think about people in the USSR; oh, they must be so good because the rules are so harsh. But actually, he recalls and says, actually, there is no rules because there's so many of them. People just do things and whatever they can get away with because they know they're going to get stung by something. And I think there's an element of that happening. 
Um, I'm not saying it explains the situation completely, um, but I, I actually see a shift on that. And I've seen an increase, like a dramatic increase, particularly in the last 12 months of kids um, just refusing to do things like a reasonable instruction, like just nothing, no big deal, but a reasonable instruction, just go, no, I don't want to do it. Mm. And that's never happened to me before. In that that's process. a really fascinating insight. Um, I've never thought about it like that, but that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, and I'm not saying it explains everything. I'm saying that's one one part of what's taken what what's taken place. Yeah, I, also, it, I feel like there is a simmering uh, anger um, at a community level, um, particularly amongst um, adults, because there has to be, particularly now in hindsight, a recognition of what was what happened to us was mm. wrong, and people, I think, know that. Um, and I think I've spoken to someone else about this and how this cost of living crisis is kind of trying to like nullify that, that, that simmering anger. And perhaps the kids are, are picking up on that anger in the, in the household and then um, doing what kids do naturally. And that is push boundaries and see what they, they can get away with. But that, that idea, um, I have heard a philosopher talk about the USSR exactly like that before, but I can't remember um, the name of it. This idea that, that people were 100% conforming and like almost like autotrons and that that was actually completely not the case. And one of the main reasons that the USR collapsed was because there was this huge black economy, cash economy um, that, that existed that was outside of, outside of that. Mm. Um, God, that's really interesting. But one last thing I just wanted to ask, the other popular narrative that I've just remembered is the idea um, that there is a lot less male teachers. I feel that that's actually correct. Um, however, um, as per usual with media, there's the headline, um, there's the sub subheading, and there's never actually any real in-depth or analysis as to potentially why that is happening. Mm. Do you, any, any ideas or, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. And that's true. Like it is, I can't deny that. It is absolutely true. And the conversations I have, particularly with males, like primary school males, it'd be rare that I won't have a conversation with them along these lines, but it happens with high school teachers too. Um, you need to be very, very careful with the situation that you find yourself in with um, with students, particularly if you're male and female students. Uh, it only takes one accusation um, and you're in a world of pain. And uh, yeah, I would say most teachers have come up to me at some stage and said, I'm, I'm just, I can't continue this because I'm really concerned that I'm just going to be accused of something. Uh, and right. so there is an underlying thing that, and there is to some extent an underlying, I don't know how prominent it is, thought behind those males that may have gone into teaching that they, that that is something that puts them off. Yeah. Uh, no, I um I believe that I one of the guys that graduated um with the PhD the same time as me got a teaching position in a university in the UK, mm. and um for whatever reason he um had an, a, a disagreement with a student, the student came to see him with a witness, her her best friend, um, the the meeting went he thought well. And in fact, um, he even emailed um, the dean of his department to, to talk about the meeting and how well it went. 
they then made an accusation against him inappropriately behaving towards both of them and and he was sacked um so i think that that's a very real um uh fear i'd i'd never put that together i'd always thought about that in terms of universities and i've certainly seen a, a huge shift um, particularly within uh, education, social work, sociology, humanities, social sciences, um, and even some of the softer sciences, the health sciences. That I, I don't know the exact figures, but it would have to be having passed through the university system for too many years. And mm. um, I would say that if you include the bureaucrats, which, by the way, make up between 60 and 65% of those people employed at universities, which is quite extraordinary. When you think about the academics only make up about 35% of people who are employed at universities now. Um, but that point aside, about 60 to 70%, probably closer to 70% of the teaching staff um, are female. Um, so we have seen, a, a, that's at the universities, we have seen a, a huge shift in that, that direction. Um, but I think that that's, that's a very interesting and valid observation about what could be driving men away from teaching. You yeah. know, it's interesting that they often frame it in very, and I think deliberately slow, so, um, they frame it in very traditional patriarchy terms in sense of they like to say that teaching is more of a kind of feminine occupation and that it's low paying and men want to earn more and I find that like that that's quite hypocritical particularly coming from their perspective mm. do you know what I mean like yeah it's um I'm going to continue to say controversial things um so controversial you... things are good the young people <laughs> that watch my podcast say I'm too boring so <laughs> controversial no, things look, are good there, there's no doubt that the like by numbers the education industry is dominated by females. Yes, okay. it is. Um, does that make sense? I think it does in terms of the soft skills and the relationships. I do think stereotypes are not the ultimate answer, but they, they answer something. Um, so if you've got a maths degree, computing science degree, engineering degree, you know, the chances are most of those types of people are going to be building things if they're males. That's what males do. Um, there's going to be a minority that go into teaching or some soft skills and that's the way that's okay. But in, as a generalization, it is a, um, a female dominated industry. Um, so that, that part's, you know, that part's true in terms of the pay. Uh, I know that's always the claim. Um, I just want to bring some balance to that. Um, it depends on your perspective. Like what, what are you comparing? If you're a teacher, what are you comparing that to? Um, uh, I like to compare myself to a bus driver, like, you know, bus drivers, I've worked on buses for a few years for a project and I knew how the shifts they worked as a young person and the abuse they copped and all the rest of it that went on too, or I could be a bus driver. So am I comparing myself to a bus driver or am I comparing myself to the CEO of a company? And, and you know what, I've been in meetings with uh, three CEOs of large companies and they are on multi-million dollar amounts and I don't know if they're worth it or not if they if they earn 10 million dollars a year and they bring 20 million dollars into the company then they're worth it um, if they don't then they're not worth it but intrinsically a high-paid CEO um, I know they're on call 24 by 7 um, they often work in a house that's supplied by the company which means they're on call all the time and it's a real goldfish bowl that they live in so I think like a lot of jobs that has its pros and cons I mean, with what you with what you do and I think we often have an attitude of the grass is always greener on the other side. And 
till you get to the other side and then we want something else. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the, the question about paying teaching, um, I think, yeah, okay. Teachers, yeah, can you pay them more and do they put up with some unreasonable things? Yes. But are they paid a reasonable amount? Yes, I think that's the case too. Yeah. So. Trust me, coming from the service industry, you guys are millionaires compared to Yeah, right. Well, that's, that's it. I could, be serving, <laughs> I could be serving tables, right? Couldn't I? Yeah, I could be doing all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's good. Thank you for addressing those. I appreciate it. Now, there, there's one thing that I just want to go back. Um, you, you mentioned about a student who had struggled during COVID. Um, and I know that it was in either one of your articles or in the the speech, um, you you kind of teased a little bit by saying that you had your students run a cost-benefit analysis of the Australia's COVID-19 response. Yep. Are you able to touch on some of the um, responses and potentially some of the reactions of the students, the parents and your colleagues to even bringing up such a controversial subject matter? Oh, I think that's a really good question. Sorry, I'm actually just going to get something up if you don't mind me because I'll actually read out some of the quotes. Oh, uh, right, yeah. So I don't plagiarise their feedback or I don't misrepresent their feedback um, itself. No, this is great because, again, this is outside of the realm of the experts and the talking heads, um, which, for whatever reason, we don't seem to do very much anymore in Australia. No, that's that's you're, you're absolutely right. It's something I've hit on. Well, that's hit on a lot. And it's really interesting when you when you look at the experts uh, themselves and you actually look at the experience that they've had, and it's often not that high in the industry. And so they go into research or they go into theories uh, more so. So they perpetuate things which may not work. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the engineering and he's, he's, he's an engineering consultant. He's had many years of engineering, but he also did lecturing. Um, and he said that some of the lecturers there were producing designs which could not possibly work. Like we're talking that build a road, design a road where a truck would come around it and it would tip over if, if you actually put that into practice. And so I think there's a lot of that happening where they think things in theory, but how that actually plays out in reality is two different things. Um, now, they, they say that they've had you know, rigorous research, but often when you look at the research in detail, um, it has its faults um, in the process too. So it's it's a really interesting, that's a really interesting discussion itself, um, which we can come back to. The, on this particular one, it, your, your point is really valid because it's still a significant thought playing on a lot of people's minds. And the reality is the response over the last, since 2020, should be playing on people's minds because it's affected us and it's affected us in a major way. Um, and we can talk about some numbers um, and some reasons why I think that uh, a bit later on, if we want to come back to that, but there's no doubt that it has. Um, if you were talking about this stuff in 2020, as you know, um, you were probably considered a prior or for some reason, a mad person. And part of that presentation was actually talking about how, you know, I looked in that, in that process too, but you, you've got some pretty significant people like CS Lewis, who actually talks about those types of things too, saying that, you know, the person who is running away, who's the only one that's running away from the cliff, for instance, is the one that looks like he's insane. So you can look like you're running in the wrong direction from the mob, but you're actually working, running in the right direction. So, um, you know, you, you get some confidence in that. So there's a 2020, it's a no-go zone. 2021 is just overtaken by fear. And you, you have quiet conversations, but even those quiet conversations, even if you logically present evidence of 
one particular thing, then you've, you've got, you've, you've done this most perfect presentation and cost benefit analysis of it, and you've simplified it down to five points. It made no difference. The narrative had taken over um, and whatever that narrative was um, meant that you, nothing you could say would make any difference to that. Um, 2022 uh, was started to shift. Um, and I think by the beginning of 2023, we can start having that dialogue. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. So I couldn't have done what I did in 2021. Right. Like, you know, 2022 was actually a real mess of a year because, you know, you, they couldn't, couldn't, well, the, basically the, the spread of the virus had already started occurring. And so it was only a matter of time before they lost control of the spread anyway. And the fact that they kept us back so long meant that we were vulnerable to everything. And so when it when it came loose, when it, it took hold, it was going to create mayhem, which is what happened um, mm. in 2022. But yeah, you know, health policies didn't help the situation. They they they, they continued to um, hold on to as much power as possible and fear generation. So you had people being isolated left, right, and centre during that time, and that's kind of still happening, but it's much less than what it was um last year and you know what i expected that to be the case because there's just no other i could not see a, another way that was going to take place um it'd be nice if everyone um offered a mea culpa at that point in time and say yeah we got it wrong and we're going to deal with it then it would change people's attitudes but that's not what happened mm. um so yeah come this year was probably the first year that that was possible to run an exercise like that um and you know talking to um Gigi foster i used the work some of the work from her and sanjay sublock um, as well as Paul Freiters as well um, in that process too. So that was kind of good having some dialogue going back to construct the actual exercise itself um, to make sure my usage was simplified for what they were after, but was was actually relevant. Um, yeah. I'll very, just say, um, I think most people are aware of um, certainly Gigi um, yeah. and Paul, but it was Sanjay was... Uh, yeah, Sanjay correct Sanjay. me if I'm wrong. He's an incredibly brave man that um, on principle... Um, quit um, and it did cause for about 24 hours I think there was a little bit of a media storm about it but then of course it was um, squashed pretty quickly uh, sure. because to have someone in his position of power um, stand down and not just stand down but to talk out against Dan Andrews was never going to be tolerated and Correct. yeah yeah that's exactly you're spot on exactly right so he and Gigi wrote a cost benefit analysis on the COVID response which is actually a really good one Yes, um, but yeah. yeah. And they released actually the, and it's still released the executive summary for free use. So I use part of that as well as the actual book itself. So the kids would be looking that up. But look, I wanted to give a balanced view. So that makes it sound like I'm driving a narrative. But actually, what I did is um, I had that information, but I also got whatever government information I could and I put that up um, for usage. And I got students basically to create a balanced view in terms of saying, well, if you're looking at the Australia's response, make it like for, for like a balanced view basically so you're having a similar number of pros and, and and cons in in that in that process so tried to do it as much as that and certainly um the majority of kids um going into that were it's were pro australia's response to covid um, which i found fascinating because you mentioned something before a, a few times and we have this this concept of teenagers being rebellious and so we would have thought perhaps that teenagers would be the group that would kick back and not follow the rules, but they did. They, the vast majority followed the rules. Um, and 
when it became clear that they weren't personally at risk, um, the narrative changed to you're going to kill granny. And that took hold. Um, and it was really sad, but that took hold. And so the kids were very much convinced that Australia's response um, was world's best, saved, their, saved people's lives, all those sorts of things. Um, and as they did the investigation itself, they obviously, it's pretty complicated stuff, but they actually did a really good job trying to piece things together um, in, a, in a way. Um, and pretty insightful to ask the question about how the parents respond. Um, I did get a couple of calls to start with. And by the time I had, by the time the process had got underway, I think the parents actually realised what I was trying to do. Um, and then the, the calls just disappeared. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't continue. There was no complaints um, over it. Um, colleagues? Yeah, so yeah. Pardon? The colleagues? Yeah. The, 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 the colleagues is a really, so the colleagues is a really interesting one because the team we've got in the mass department is a really good team. Um, now it doesn't mean to say people really critically analyzed what was going on. Um, but they were just at least obliging. There was, there was no um, really big emotional scenes um, against kicking back against the narrative. Certainly mm -hmm. in other parts of the school, um, you could see the fear there. And so you needed to, to, you needed to uh, approach that delicately and gently because at the end of the day, everyone has a dignity of life um, regardless of what you think. And so it, it's not helpful to try and convince someone of something that's so deeply embedded that you can't have that conversation at that point in time. The only thing you can do, I think, at that point in time is try and listen and then mm. maybe have a conversation. And so that part was pretty was pretty good. Um, we didn't tend to get um, approached too much from external. Well, yeah, outrightly, we didn't get approached from too much external kickback. Um, but there's probably a set of reasons, yeah, a set of reasons for that. Um, probably more associated with the dynamics of the team than anything else. So I don't know that my experience would necessarily be reflected in every school uh, out there. Under, like, I don't know whether I could replicate what I did in every other school and not have different challenges. Um, in some, I think I think you would struggle because uh, of all the professions, I think that teachers in particular were quite. Um obedient and sensitive to the the main COVID narrative uh, and were quite compliant for yeah. What, yeah. whatever reasons um yeah no i think that's right yeah. i think that's right yeah the the interesting thing and, and it didn't it's i guess it's the cognitive dissonance of of what took place but even at the end of 22 so don perrottet premier of new south wales even said at the time um at the end of 2021 in the opening of the schools of 2022, the unions and the Department of Education wanted to close schools again, uh, wanted to continue them closed. So they kind of pushed that through. And their negotiation was to have regular rat tests. You're supposed to test twice a week or three times a week. And so they then sent out hundreds of thousands of these rat tests to parents and they're still floating around. Um, yeah, I know they're on clearance at Aldi for, I think, um, $3.90. Yeah. Um, the reason that we're both smiling is because we remember the prices that were getting charged during the peak. And well, yeah, yeah. We, we we looked at the economics of that too in, oh, in class. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was that was interesting in itself. But the point, my point being is, Perite, and the reason why I say this is because the 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 Premier of New South Wales said himself that these these rat tests, these 
this process to open up didn't actually come from the health department. Mm. Um, it came from the education department and unions. So that kind of told you everything. Well, why do they have a say in in what happens? This they're not experts on health. Not that our health department is, but the education department certainly isn't. Yeah, um, occasionally the truth accidentally slips out, and you. Um, had a really good quote in your article from uh, Dr. Jeanette Young, who was the uh, chief health officer in Queensland, yep. um, who was, was that a, a Freudian slip? Did she no. let that? No, she deliberately said that. It's in multiple articles. Uh, Pauline Hanson actually picked up on it too in parliament, but she actually had no choice. This is one of the things that the chief health officers um, are very clever. I think they're very clever people. And... Well, they're politicians. Yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's right. What the, yeah, that's what they are because, but they're unelected, of course, politicians. So they're very high-ranking bureaucrats. But in, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off then. But um, my my perspective is that in order to reach that that position, you have to be a political animal, mm. um, and that that that's what I saw all these people as. And um, it, it's completely not only is it disturbing what they they allowed to happen in the name of health, not necessarily with any scientific backing, like you said, but the fact that most of these health officers have um, avoided any retribution for their 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 rulings, and in fact, in many cases, in this lady's case, um, the guy in Victoria, they've received promotions, which is quite extraordinary. That's it is it is extraordinary. Um, so the control of their speech has been extraordinary. So mm. if you look at New South Wales's case of Brad Hazard and Kerry Chan, and looking at even when they turn up to Parliament for question time or discussion, Kerry Chan just is so disciplined in what she says. And Brad Hazard's an experienced politician. Yeah. But to be honest, he looks like a minnow in comparison to her. Like he um, he berates, he miscommunicates. And again, he's an experienced politician. Yeah. Uh, she holds her tongue and is very measured in her words. So the background behind uh, the Jeanette Young article is really fascinating to look at the timeline um, on it because what actually took place just prior to this is New South Wales opened its schools. So Queensland schools remain closed. Mm. New South Wales, now New South Wales is more exposed internationally to the possibility of COVID, assuming, you know, COVID being this portrayed as being this deadly disease that's going to turn everyone to zombies or kill everyone, right? Mm. Um, New South Wales is more highly exposed, yet it opens the schools. Queensland schools are closed. So Jeanette Young actually has to respond to that. And I actually think these articles are her response to that. Mm. Uh, because she's asked questions. And so you're quite right. Do you want me to read her quote? Is that what Yeah, that, if you've got it, that'd be great, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, this is a newspaper, but it's Brisbane Times in April 2020. If you, uh, while the evidence showed that schools were not a high-risk environment, so they were not a high-risk environment for the spread of the virus, closing them down would help people understand the gravity of the situation. What? Like, how is that not, I don't know, how does that not stop the society straight away and go, you've just said you've closed it for the sake of closing it? And then she goes on, if you go out to the community and say, this is so bad, we can't even have schools, all schools have to be closed, you're really getting to people. So sometimes it's more than just the science and the health, it's about the messaging. Really? That's why I meant, uh, that's why I asked, do you think it was a Freudian slip? Because it seems extraordinary to me that, that, that people would not, where were the press, where were the media when... She's literally saying we're using fear and propaganda to scare the, excuse the expression, scare the shit out of people. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to use children as shields. 
Yep. It's um, it's evil. <laughs> it's evil. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the word. Um, Ros Neal and Cook, we, we have a, a slight disagreement in that she has a view. She's a well, she calls herself an ex psychologist at the moment. Uh, very very well thought out person um, in terms of what the motivations of people are. But I think it boils down to that's just evil. Like I can't I can't call it anything else. To throw children under the bus for the sake of messaging when we're the ones that are supposed to be protecting them. Mm. Like that's as simple as that. Um yeah, yeah, no, that's the that's certainly the case. Yeah, that's that's certainly the case. Oh, um, I was gonna see if you had loaded up um some of the quotes from um the kids, because I think that that yes. would be um that, I think that's really interesting just to hear what the the young people um because again actually now that i'm thinking about it um young people's voices uh have been void yep from this debate i'm not I, like i am still in touch with academia and i have written a paper um about the impact of covid it was in the realm of social work yep. and i have to say uh there's a lot of um, talk about what were the best educational responses, how did educators respond, how did the bureaucrats respond, how are they going to deal with the, the learning difficulties and the mental health outcomes. But it's always talking um, on behalf of the young people and policy as opposed to actually speaking to. So I would love to hear what um, some of the, the young people have to say. Yeah, it's really, it's, 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 it's so, so bad. Um, hold that thought and come back. Uh, we can come back and talk to about it at that time. But some of the things I saw students do, very, very self-destructive um, on the basis of um, I'm protecting granny. You know, basically the narrative of that. And it, it shocked me. Like uh, kids were, um, I saw kids harm themselves to try and protect someone else potentially from catching a cold effectively. Mm. Like it didn't even have to be COVID at that point in time. And it's it just is heartbreaking. Uh, the one thing that um, while you're loading up that I might just ask you is, um, and I did discuss this with Michael the other day, we're, we're having this very strange phenomenon in Australia of premiers standing down um, mm. after recently being re-elected. Um, and the common denominator um, amongst all of them that have stood down, premiers and territory leaders, is that they were in charge um, of some of the the worst and most draconian COVID policies. Now, is are they all stepping down? Because uh, it's incredibly rare in Australia for a premier who has been voted back in again to then almost, um, in some cases, almost immediately step down. Um, so, is the do you see a linkage between this? Because we have now had it in Western Australia, Victoria, Queensland, and Northern Territory. So four in the spate of eighteen months. Yeah, and Victoria. You... Yeah. Sorry. So yes, yes is the answer. I think they're doing. They've got opinion polls, and they're on the nose, like, and that's why they're going. Um, again, okay, so John Ruddick is a uh, politician in New South Wales, and I'm happy for him to override what I say. So he's in the upper house of the New South Wales Parliament. Um, a really uh, insightful person. Um, and so if he disagrees with what I'm about to say, I'm happy to, to be disagreed with. Uh, but Barry Jicklin lost her um, premiership in 2021, 20, yeah, yeah, before 2022. Um, and the week before she stood down, her polls had slid about 4% uh, 
Um, and I thought, and I haven't been able to verify that's been harder, that there was another slide the next week. So in thinking, the theory is that she lost um, her position because of the controversy around ICAC. And yeah. that's what she sort of said. I'm not convinced. Um, right. I'm not convinced. I, I think there is a common denominator where there is a slide in the opinion polls. It's one of the redeeming features. One of the few things that's been a success in our system that's kept us safe is the fact that we still have elections. You know, that's that's it. I think. You, um, I'm perhaps being a little bit more conspiratorial here, but you don't think that they're stepping down because they know that something's coming? Not that I know of. I think it's purely they're on the nose. Yeah. In each case, in each case. They, they seem to be looking at the politicians is very few um, politicians. There appears to be very few politicians that are conviction politicians that will stick by their guns. A lot of mm -hmm. them, unfortunately, and during those th the, the three years between 2020 and 2023, when I thought that, decision a would be the right decision to do in a circumstance and they chose decision b it shows that it turned out decision b was the more popular one either constructed popularity or was the more popular one whatever it is and so it seemed to me they're actually pretty strong on what public opinion is as much as i'd like to think otherwise mm. um i'd love the situation but we've got to be honest about it and i actually think they are very close to understanding what public opinion actually is no, I, I think you're right, because um, one of the more astounding things about the Dan Andrews uh, premiership was um, I was completely unaware that all of his rulings were focus grouped. Did yeah. you? Did, I, I had no, I only uh, found out about that a couple of months ago. So before he made any of his, what would you call them? <laughs> Dic dictates, uh, uh, rulings, uh, he would um, focus group it through um, a representative group in the community to see if it would um, be popular or not. Um, yeah, and I think I think we need to be careful with the, the the focus group because I think often the question could be in the focus group itself is if we apply strategy X, what is the response going to be? Yeah. So you know, there's that whole nudge factor that's taking place as well. So it may not be under an objective viewpoint. What is your opinion of this? It's also how can we manipulate a person into this position and what's their response going to be? You know, if we make them terrified and we say that we're going to lock you down, are those lockdowns going to be popular? Mm. Not are, are those lockdowns going to be popular? It's, well, we've already made you fearful and yeah. we're doing this response. Is that going to be popular? Yeah. So I think, I think there's, oh, look, I know we're we're kind of spitballing out of the out of the inner circle and inner sanctum, so I don't know, but that's that's what I'm. That would be my uneducated opinion um, from the outside world. That's what we're here for. I don't think it's a very good representation of someone's ability to lead, though. The opinion poll. Or... Well, depending on our focus groups. No, of in order, not. in order to make decisions. Um... Um, yeah, I don't think a, a true uh, natural born leader um, or someone who has the best intentions, particularly when it comes to um, long term goals and objectives. Right. Um, I, I don't think a focus group is, is a good way to, to make decisions. No, well, let's say your country's in massive debt, right? We're in massive debt. But let's say a state premier um, comes along and says, actually, um, we've, we're in massive debt. 
um, for the sake of your future, we're actually going to have to pay off more debt, which means it's less services or whatever it happens to be during that time. That's often not a popular, popular thing to take on, even though it's for the best of that society, that state, that country to do so. Perfect example. <laughs> yeah. 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 Perfect example. Um, so just before, that's right, that's what it was in terms of the kids. Dr. David Richards at ASF as well presented some information. Um, so you had David, I think, on the program. Is that right? Yeah, he's, he's lovely. Um, yeah. He's, um, he's he, I'm not sure if his research has been released yet. Um, I know he spoke about some research that he was doing um, that was quite, um, well, startling what he was finding. But I'm not sure. Has he released that, that research? Oh, that he very was, good question. Um, the, this the, 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 he was doing research in in children as as vectors of um yeah. yeah yeah so he so has well he quoted I won't I'll then I won't reveal his actual direct information but I'll, the su subsequent quotes that he referred to is some studies in Scandinavia and I haven't checked it so I think it's probably Denmark but wherever it is that schools were actually had less transmission than the public than the general public itself so kids were actually transmitting at, at a less rate than what yes. adults were. Yet that narrative was that kids were disease vectors. Like the, the two are not not compatible. Like you can't even say under these circumstances, this is this. So that whole narrative of kids being disease vectors is only about the messaging, if that's mm. true. Mm. And it seems to be the case. It's not even that kids spread it at the same rate, in which case schools shouldn't be closed. They actually turns out spread it at a much less rate. They spread at less rate, and I believe there is a study or a couple of studies that have shown that not only did they spread it um, at a less rate, but if a child gets infected, because it doesn't affect young people and children as much as it does adults, their mm. immune system fights it so quickly and so efficiently that they actually weaken the virus that they pass on to the next person. Um, and, and that was the aspect of the research with David. I think I discussed that he was still mulling over um mm. so perhaps i've overstepped the mark there but no. if that if that's that's true that is um that's an extraordinary finding and yeah. immediately plays back into what you're saying about the chief health officer in queensland correct now you cannot she cannot have any information to back up her view any scientific because it just wasn't there no and right. and um from what gigi was saying um the, the research, even in terms of children, um, you don't need to talk about it. Oh, was it available in 2020? They actually have known this for a very long time. Right. So even Norman Swan, so the ABC's Norman Swan. Um, yes. In, on, the 27, on, the, on the 27th of April 2020, after looking at a small study of schools in New South Wales, concluded that opening schools was low risk. That's yeah, right. Words. He that's said his, that. That's his words. Wow. I saw him on the project this uh, wait uh, last week, um, right. saying that uh, you shouldn't invite people to your Christmas party unless they've had their fifth booster. So still sowing seeds of hatred and okay. still dividing so up the community and all of the hosts. They 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 panned the camera. It was very deliberate. After he said that, they panned the camera to all of the so people that don't realize the the, the project is a, a panel. Um, as four, generally four hosts. They showed every single host singly on the screen. I've had my booster. I've had my booster too. You'd have to be mad not to have your booster. It was 
an infomercial. That's the only way to describe it. And to be saying these things in December 2023 is beyond offensive. I'm sorry, but uh, again, this is an individual who is a doctor. But as you said with um, Dr. Young, that that's not coming from any science. There's an interesting, if you're interested, uh, I can't remember the article, but I actually wrote a Spectator article where I brought in some of uh, Norman Swan's predictions and what actually really happened um, after that point. So um, needless to say, he hasn't been particularly accurate in in what he has said. Yeah. You know, there's a very good nursery rhyme that um, warns about people like Norman, Norman Swan, you know, yep. <laughs> the sky is falling. Um, yeah, and we used to ignore people like that. But um, anyway... Well, it's worse than that, isn't it? Because he's in a position of authority. So he wasn't a kid or something else saying the sky's falling. He is a position, an expert with significant and substantial influence. It still does. Yes. Yeah. Um, so kids' responses to this. Oh yes. Yep. Um, okay. A couple of things. Just, just. Oh, I'm just going to read out a couple of random quotes. You can stop at any point in time. Uh, I actually learned something really amazing, how to do a cost-benefit analysis, and then I learned about Wellbees, which is the well-being index that Paul Friders has worked on. Um, yeah, I've, I've learned about how the lockdowns affected everyone's mental health and how bad it was for Australia. Uh, it definitely opened my mind on perspectives there are in terms of long-term and short-term effects. Uh, just to provide some balance as well. Uh, no, because I thought that lockdowns was good before, and I still do because I don't like doing school in person, and that's what lockdowns did. It's, it's honesty. We, we want to see that. That's exactly what we're after. Um, I think that we took COVID-19 for granted. We did not take the time to process our thoughts and conduct basic research about common ideas. This assessment made me evaluate the positive and negative aspects of the pandemic. So these are actually pretty well, you know, we're talking a group of 15, 16 year olds that did, did this. They're, wow, they're... So year nine and year 10 students. Yep. I'm going to be honest with you. I've marked uh, university essays that aren't particularly that last response that was very mm. articulate um, yep. and involved uh, critical thinking because there was arguments for and against. Exactly. And right. So for a 15, 16 year old to be doing that, that is, yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah, indeed, some results such as lost GDP and lost well-being in my assessment ended up being being insane amounts of well-being, which was unexpected compared to the benefits, as the well-being total in those two alone outweighed everything else by a ton. There's there's a whole series of other ones, so that's just a snapshot. And this plays into, um, I have a quote here from you, which I really liked. You're talking about, I think, um, which is actually the reason I got you on, sorry, I will, we will an hour later get onto that. Um, so I missed your speech at the Australian for Science and Freedom uh, conference. And one of the things that you were speaking about was um, rebuilding education and relationships for a better future. And mm. within that, uh, you gave a, a couple of recommendations. I think in the speech itself, you probably gave a, a few more. But mm. one of the things that um, I, th I think was very important was where you said that giving students permission to understand that the circumstances have been unfair and out of their control. Mm. I yeah. Think it, that's an important thing. Yeah. And that's one of those ones. It wasn't a deliberate act of me coming to that conclusion. It was an observation over probably, I'd say 12 months. Basically what I realized is I sat back for probably 12 months. I thought, how is it that we can actually turn this around? Um, and it seemed to me that we continue, uh, we, we did, and we continue to do so, do is dance around what the core issue is. 
And so naming it allows it to be dealt with because I, I found it difficult to actually deal with it without actually naming what it is. Mm. Um, and it's really difficult. It's, it's actually a, a very, it's actually a very difficult concept to articulate and articulate well, because in a, something like a maths class, for instance, which is highly technically focused, there is a lot of skills that you're actually teaching. Um, and I can point to specific skills across schools based on feedback and across regions, which have been lost during that time, which is, which was completely unexpected, right? You would, you wouldn't think there'd be that uniformity, um, but there is. And how is it, how do you, you don't want to come back to each of those skills and go, well, you haven't got this because of the lockdown times, but you also then have to articulate that information to say, I'm not surprised that you can't do this. It's actually not your fault that you can't do this particular part. And so it's a difficult balance to actually get to do that right. But fundamentally naming it allows that to be then dealt with and you kids get to create an almost tangible object to say, well, this is the reason why these particular aspects are really hard at the moment and why I don't understand them. And if they don't understand them, and there's a reason for that, then you can deal with fixing that up. And so the conversation is, this has been unfair on you. It, life has really sucked. Mm -hmm. Like it really has. Um, and uh, work with me because I'll work with you to try and fix those things up if we work together on it. And so that's the kind of mantra and communication that we have in terms of it. And that, overall, I mean, nothing's perfect, but overall that's been really well received. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that's it. And I think until we do that on a broader perspective, we're not going to fix this, not going to fix this up. And how, how do you feel that the, the kids overall, because you have quite a unique perspective because you can, I know you're not necessarily involved in the primary school, but you get to see that and hear perhaps what the teachers have to say. Um, are they, they still struggling? Um, is there any particular year that you think um, suffered a little bit more uh, than others? Yeah, it's a really, uh, really good question. So from the maths perspective around that year nine level, 15 years is, is what's been hit the hardest in terms of the math skills. Yeah. So we're seeing roughly the, the standardized testings are showing that that's in some cases have gone backwards. So they, they go backwards between year seven to year eight or year roughly around the year nine mark. So they're actually losing skills. Um, and that's continuing at the moment, but it's probably a flow on effect from the previous years. Um, so there is, there is that. Um, and if you think about it this way, I think this is a very good generalization. And I took this externally. Uh, this actually wasn't my idea to thought to, to think about, but I took this externally to external camps as well, or a particular external camp that had school kids all the time. And I asked them about the maturity level of what they were seeing, because what we brought in so what the year I was responsible for was the worst I'd ever seen in terms of behavior um, it wasn't that there were fights or anything like that they were just doing odd things which would be considered disrespectful just breaking into their own groups of conversation during an instruction phase of canoeing or whatever it happened to be and the presenter was doing doing a really good job really interesting so it wasn't like they were boring but they just do odd things um, and when we thought about it a bit more and I came back to the guy 12 months later what we realized in between is that the kids have been delayed two years, roughly in maturity. So if you think about a year nine kid, let's, let's take the year nine boy, right? You know, peak of 
adrenaline and testosterone and they're physically growing strong. And you throw a kid's, a year seven kid's mind in that year nine boy. Mm. What, what would you expect to get? Well, you'd expect to get disruptive behavior. You'd get to expect immature behavior. You expect to get behavior not cognizant with the physical specimen you see in front of you. Um, and girls are similar, slightly different, but that just as a very simple image, you know, that's what we're talking about. And so, and that's what we're talking about, I think, all the way through school as well. So what you assumed was a year four kid in primary school is probably acting with some elements of a year two, a year two child. Um, because communication- That can be disconcerting, uh, particularly when uh, you use the example of the 15-year-old, because some 15-year-olds are almost young men. Yep. And, and to think that there's that, that physicality, that power- um, and that appearance, but the the emotional and intellect of someone perhaps two years younger, um, that's a lot. A 13-year-old compared to a 15-year-old is, is a big difference. Yeah, and, and let me give you an idea of um, just to say, just to give some perspective on it. This doesn't mean to say it translates into violence or some other like area, but I had a class last year, and last year was probably going to be uh, in some respect, for the United was going to be the worst because they've come back um, after disruptive 2021 into a disruptive 2022, but without lockdowns, but with all that immaturity and they're expected to be able to learn in a classroom setting and concentrate and, you know, follow a whole set of rules that they're not accustomed to following. Um, and so I would have kids and I'd do, you know, a, a pretty reasonable job in, in subjects and I'd have a couple of subjects and it'd be one kid would just burst into laughter. Like just start giggling laughter, like I've gone, oh, okay. Um, maybe okay, everything okay. Oh, just I, I don't know why. I can't control it. Like I'm just just laughing. And you kind of expect that hormonal change to take place from primary to year sevens, or I would normally like that sort of you know, giggly, silly behavior, but it was much later on. And of course, then a couple of other kids that would catch into a couple of other kids, and before you know it, you know, it becomes like a virus in itself. Now, they weren't intentionally doing being disruptive. They didn't actually even know why they were um, laughing. Um, they would always respond by saying, like, if it was a particular, if I got a kid quickly enough and say, look, do you want to go for a walk, wash your face, settle down and come back when you're ready? It, fine, no issue. So they weren't trying to be disruptive in that process. So it, it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Um, I was talking I've to someone. I've seen this in one of my nephews. I'm sorry to cut you, oh, but um, yeah, he. Um... He exactly what you said just now. Um, he will articulate. I don't know why I did that. Yep. And yep. the way that you're describing the behaviour as being surprising and uh, strange at times. Um, mm. Exactly the same thing from him. No, that's right, and, and that's you know that's kind of normal. But but it's that shifting the later in years, and there's going to be a series of other things. There's, I was talking to someone else at the other end. It's hard to say because we've got that whole atomization occurring at the same time. When, you know, it's almost the uh, faulty towers, don't mention the war type scenario where yeah. no one's willing to talk about things openly, um, which if I can digress just a little bit, that's that was one of the, the amazing things from the Australian Science and Freedom Conference. Um, the fee general feedback I had from presenters and people there saying, I can relax. And I can discuss about discuss things, and it doesn't mean that people didn't argue or have different views. There were some very heated discussions, and in the education one that I was in, there was some quite heated stuff as well, or quite tense stuff happening. But it was not people were not 
out of their comfort zone in terms of they felt free to be able to express themselves. Yeah, um, I felt like I was a member of a secret society during COVID because the, you had to kind of suss everybody out and you ask kind of really soft sort of leading questions. You get a very hard response. You're like, right, no, next. Um, and I, I remember going um, when we were allowed, so obviously in 2022, going to parties and just having very quiet conversation with very small groups of people. And I, I remember being amazed at just how quickly um, I was able to bond with these people who before that evening had been complete strangers. And I, I think that that is certainly representation of going through a traumatic event, that when you find someone who, you know, in a group of like 100, 150 people, you find three or four people that are on your page. At the times that it happened, the things that I noticed happening would be we would very quickly remove ourselves from the group and find our own space where mm. people couldn't hear us. And mm. um, we would uh, exchange numbers and emails and contacts a lot quicker than what I would have done in the past. Um, and the conversation would not be superficial. It would not be that uncomfortable social um, conversation that you have with strangers. It would get very deep, very quickly. And um, it was a very, very fast bonding. Um, and it's because you had found a kindred spirit and because they were so rare, um, you had to to hold on to them. So, um, and yeah, I felt that at ASF, I certainly felt, uh, sorry, at the conference, um, like completely comfortable um, in the sense that these these people are all on the same page. I also felt that there, um, uh, some of the people even spoke about the fact that this is very much being swept under the rug, thrown down the memory hole um, and, I've even had comments from people I know and comments from people online literally saying, um, I actually, uh, I had a gentleman abusing me when I was digging the holes for the forest of the fallen. Um, the forest of the fallen is where you put the pegs with a, a little attachment of a, a laminated piece of paper, which gives the image and the story of someone who either passed or was injured by the vaccines. And yeah, he shouted at me. I don't know why you're still doing this. COVID is ancient history. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if the 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 desire <laughs> to forget about it is part of the processing of the trauma, but I still think that it's about repressing the anger and not acknowledging what was wrong because it's very hard. Oh, sorry, what was done wrong because it's very hard to get people to admit that they were duped. Yeah, that's and you're right, and I think. Oh, okay, so um, I think deep down people need to understand and i know robert malone talks about this he actually uh, quite artic he articulates it really well but it's that concept of uh, the fact that we're exposed to weapons grade propaganda um is the case i think people need to understand it was not their fault like and not and i'm not saying in terms of a you know arrogant full of myself point of view i'm saying literally that they need to understand it wasn't their fault they trusted they had a reason to trust a reasonable right and expectation to trust these institutions and they betrayed them and they betrayed them in the most horrendous way mm -hmm. um and, and i think until we well i don't know see it's really hard to say stephen shavara historian who was at asf as well um john he's been john anderson's interviewed him several times um and he talks about um one of the things john anderson asked him so former deputy prime minister john anderson asked him 
um, have we seen this before in our history, this kind of propaganda? He said, you actually saw it in World War One, um, And then what transpired in World War One, we kind of just um, crab walked away and didn't actually deal with that side of it. So that could be the case as well. Um, but and I, the result of not dealing with that correctly, of course, was World War II. World War II. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Leave yourself susceptible to it. So what you've, yeah, what you've said is right, and it's difficult to have those conversations, and that atomization, the subsequent atomization occurs, also means it's difficult to have that open dialogue in your own workplace. So in my workplace, for instance, consistently through to those primary school classes and even through to some high school classes as well, it does come up from time to time. Um, to be honest, it, it actually comes up more with parents um, and even parents that were very much pro-mandates, like extraordinarily pro-mandates in the last couple of years, um, are opening up and admitting, not admitting, it's not that volunteer, volunteering the effects it's had on them and their kids. Mm. During the time. Even in 2020, though, the conversations I was having with um, parents were, they were always really good, like exceptional, but some of them were really heartbreaking at the same time as well. Um, it's and, interesting and, to me that they don't seem to, uh, some people don't seem to direct their anger in the right place. Right. They like to direct it to towards people like me. Um, mm. And obviously uh, there's a lot of other people like Robert Malone, rather than the politicians who forced them to, to do these things. Well, Milgram's experiment, how many people blame the white lab coat person in the end? So. Yeah, that was a shocking experiment. That's, yeah. So it's. Well, it's been um, an hour and a half. I didn't mean to go that long, but um, we still had a, a fair bit to, to cover. But, um, yeah, we'll have to leave it there and get you back on again to, to talk about the rest. The one thing that I did just want to ask you when you were talking about um, the developmental delays in kids, one thing that popped into my mind was there was a recent suggestion in Queensland um, that public schools should go to a four-day week. And my immediate thought was, aren't we still recovering from COVID? And so that's why I asked you how the kids are going, have they recovered and how? what's the reality on the ground? I mean, where, where does the idea of a four-day week for kids that are already 18 months behind uh, come from? It's, yeah, it's pure politics. Yeah. Well, the, I think the crazy thing about this is, um, oh, sorry, and I'm going to take a guess, right? And I'll probably put on, I think it's realistic, you know, maybe... People might, some might consider it a cynical perspective, but I think it's realistic. Um, I think teachers might think, hey, this is a great idea um, having four days. I mean, the general public is going to give them zero sympathy. I would have no zero sympathy if I'm working five days a week. And, you know, the perception is of a teacher who goes in at nine o'clock and finishes at three or whatever it is and goes home. That sounds like party town to me. Why would you have sympathy for anyone in that position? And now they're getting an extra day off a week. So I think it's actually bad messaging for teachers, but I think. A lot of teachers don't really understand that I think what's actually going to happen on that day is the education department will just crank up the paperwork. They're not going to find themselves with that much extra time on their hands. They're going to find themselves doing these extra initiatives. Um, I just don't see it any other way. Um, I have a theory. Um, maybe it's a closing theory to describe a lot of what we're happening, but it's not just in education department, it's everywhere else. So before it came to teaching itself in the IT industry, my part of my job was to make uh technology more effective and efficient. So, you know, you could manage more systems with less people or easier and all that to increase productivity. Um, and we did some really phenomenal job in terms of increasing productivity. Um, and, and you don't need to think too, um, too long to think, to realize 
that technology has actually increased productivity quite a bit. Um, you know, before it was memos being delivered and then it's email, just that change alone is a, is a big increase in productivity. Um, but I have a theory that the rate of increase of bureaucratic paperwork is higher than the increase in productivity as a result of technology. So whatever you are going to improve on in technology is going to be swamped by um, bureaucracy. So that day off, um, I think teachers want to be thinking very, very carefully about their response to that um, when you consider a whole series of other factors which could take place. Yeah. That's my opinion. Um, but yeah, you're right. In terms of the school kids themselves, there is there's no doubt in my, well, there is zero doubt in my mind that the educational consequences and in my field, the mathematics consequences are going to continue for some time to come. I was hoping, to be honest, initially when we undertook this, I was hoping to be able to close a reasonably under the gap within two years. Um, it then went to six years. Um, I actually think it is going to take 12, 13 years, an entire generation, maybe more. Wow. Before we get back to where we were. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, the... and we're working, and in, in, in our in our school, in our in our department, we're working specifically on those gaps that we see are as a result of COVID. So we've tailored back, you know, extension type work to focus on the core set of skills that we think that are necessary. And even doing that, I, I still I still think we're behind. Oh. So it's not like we're not trying. Teachers are trying, um, and um, but it's just a, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Okay, well, Jason, thank you so much for the chat today. If people want to get into contact with you or follow you, um, what are your socials? Where can they find you? Yeah, if, uh, just Twitter's the easiest, uh, at Jason Strecker. Easy. And and The Spectator. And The Spectator, if you search for The Spectator or ASF, the Australian Sciences. Of course, Science yep, yep. yep. Well done. Okay, thanks again. My pleasure.